Once again, we'll be reading from the book of Nahum, chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, which reads as follows. Desolate, desolation and ruin, hearts melt and knees tremble, anguish is in all loins, all faces grow pale. Where's the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb? The lions... The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour the, your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Thus says God's word. Thank you, Raven. Let's pray. Lord, we, your people, declare this morning that you are victorious. God, that there is none that can stand against you. There is none greater than you. Lord, that that you um, have all authority, all power in heaven and on earth. Lord, you decree the, the times, the rising and falling of nations, the rising and falling of kings. Lord, you are the only everlasting king. And Lord, we this morning who have believed on you, bow our knee before you, Lord God, and declare that you are great and you are greatly to be praised. Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts to hear your word, to be encouraged by the scriptures, to uh, take comfort in, in what you are telling us through this Old Testament prophet, Lord. God, I pray that we would be strengthened um, to serve you, to cling to you, to love you, to cherish you. And Lord, we just uh, give you this moment. We give you our full attention. Bless your word to our hearts. Let it bear good fruit. Lord, enable me to speak um, with authority, accuracy, compassion, and, and God, uh, a clear awareness of your word, Lord God, and, and the, the great responsibility of standing under your word and letting it speak for itself. Lord, I thank you for all of this. Lord, you are good. Your mercies never fail, Lord God. You are faithful to your people, and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So in our trip through the Minor Prophets, we've come to Nahum. Um, And Nahum uh, prophesied to Judah. Once again, I just want you to keep this in front of you. Remember two kingdoms that what was once unified Israel under David and Solomon split. Northern kingdom was Israel. Southern kingdom was Judah. And, and they, he prophesied, Nahum prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah shortly after the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. Now his uh, his prophecy is an oracle of judgment, once again, against Nineveh, the, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And uh, Assyria, if you'll recall, are the ones who were responsible for the defeat and the dispersion of Israel. They, they came in, wiped them out. They, they uh, transported all of their people all over their empire so they would be gone forever. And the, this prophecy that Nahum gives it concerns the future of the entire Assyrian Empire. Now, an interesting thing about Nahum is that it actually serves as a sequel to the book of Jonah. And you're saying, well, Mark, you skipped over Jonah. Well, I did. Uh, uh, but we're going to go back to Jonah for just a little bit today. And you'll recall in the, in the book of Jonah that God told Jonah to go to Nineveh and to proclaim that the wickedness of that great city had come up 
before God. God, what, what God was saying is, I am aware of what's going on within the boundaries of Nineveh. But as you'll recall, Jonah said, no way. He rebelled and he jumped on a ship and sailed in the other direction, defying God's command. Now, I want you to know something that God always intends that you will obey him. God always intends that when he speaks, you will listen and comply with what he has said. So in Jonah's case, because God always intends for us to obey, he hurled a storm at Jonah as he was there on the sea, thinking he was escaping the command of God. So Jonah's there on the ship. He hurls a storm at him. And the, and the, the storm became so great that it threatened to sink the ship and kill everyone on board. And yet, while all this is going on, Jonah is sleeping below decks. His heart is completely hardened. The terrified pagan sailors, these guys were not God's people, but they were terrified. And they they awoke uh, Jonah and they demanded that he get up out of bed and, and call on his God to help. They were all calling on their various gods and they thought, well, if ours aren't helping, maybe his can. And, and, and after they did that, it was soon discovered that Jonah himself was the root of the problem. And so they asked him and said, well, what do we got to do about this? What, how do we solve this problem that we're in? And Jonah told them that they should throw him overboard. And when they did throw him overboard, that the storm would cease. Now, I want you to know something. I said this last year when we preached through Jonah, but Jonah didn't repent. He didn't say, whoa, we got a big problem here. Let's turn this ship around and get me back to Nineveh like God told me in the first place. What Jonah is saying is he's saying, I would rather die than obey God. Now, if you ever find yourself in that place, let me just warn you, it's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. And so he was so stubborn that he would rather die than do what God said. <coughs> Excuse me. So reluctantly, after, you know, Jonah twists their arm a little bit, the sailors decide, okay, this is our choice. We're going to toss this guy overboard. So they, they do as he suggests. And as soon as Jonah's body hits the water, guess what happens? Storm stops. It's over. But interestingly enough, Jonah doesn't drown. In fact, God wrecks his whole plan. God sends a giant fish to swallow him, and he lived in the belly of that fish for three entire days. Now, in the fish's belly, Jonah composes this hymn because he realizes at last, in the belly of this fish, who's in charge? And after he pours his heart out, God tells the fish to vomit him out on dry land, which must have been a wonderful experience. And, And God repeats this command. Jonah, go to Nineveh. And this time, Jonah obeys. I would call that a wise choice. No telling what would have eaten him the next if he hadn't done it this time. So he obeys. And he goes and he announces in the middle of this massive city that in 40 days, Nineveh is doomed. Can you imagine getting a message like that? Having a prophet of God come stand in the middle of Lubbock and say, 40 days, you're done for. It's over. Now, what... Jonah, what is missing from Jonah's account in the book of Jonah is he doesn't say in 40 days Nineveh is doomed unless you repent. Never said that. He just said, you're doomed. You're done. God, God, your time is up. But I want you to listen how in hearing this, this, this gospel of total judgment, I want you to hear how the Ninevites responded. Let's go to the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter three, verse five, beginning. Now watch this first line. And the people of Nineveh believed 
God. They believed they were doomed. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published through, uh, throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Now watch verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. There's a lot of faith in that prayer, isn't there? That wasn't given to them as an option from Jonah. But something in them thought, if we just cry out to God, maybe God will be merciful to us. And listen what happens. Verse 10, that when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Great story. Nineveh was spared. They were not destroyed. However, <laughs> the book of Nahum sheds new light on this happy ending. Nineveh did not live happily ever after, as the fairy tale goes. By the time we get to Nahum's prophecy, over a hundred years have passed since Jonah's visit. And in that time period, Assyria has returned to its greedy, imperialistic ambitions, which were achieved through cruelty. And it was a cruelty about which they boasted. Archaeologists have found these giant reliefs left by Assyria with the words of all the, the conquering kings. And this is uh, what they found, just as an example of their barbarism. Um, these words are attributed to uh, 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 King Ashurna uh, uh, Spiral, Serpal, I can't say his name, Ashurna Serpal, uh, the second of Assyria. But listen to what he said. It says, I burnt many captives from them. I burnt them. I captured many troops alive. And from, and from some, I cut off their arms and hands. From others, I cut off their noses, ears, and extremities. I gouged out the aisles, uh, the eyes of many troops. I made one pile of the living and one of the heads. I hung their heads on trees around the city. I burnt their adolescent boys and girls. I raised, destroyed, burnt, and consumed their city. These guys weren't nice people. And they were bragging about it. They were the biggest, baddest bullies on the block, and they loved being that. But they also had this other policy. Assyria had this policy of dispersing the people they would conquer. And they would disperse them all into exile throughout their empire so that, so that a nation couldn't stay unified and regroup and resist uh, uh, Assyria. And this is what they did, of course, we've told you this, to the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. Now, all of this was evidence that Nineveh had made what I'll call a hasty repentance. Well, what do I mean by that? Jonah had come and preached and they made this hasty repentance. There doesn't seem to have been any real heart change in Nineveh, in Assyria, um, at least on a national scale. John the Baptist, when he was preaching in the time of Jesus, he, he told the people that he was preaching to, he said, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, if you are truly repenting, there should be some evidence of that. Real repentance always eventually results in character change in the one who is truly repenting. 
So Nahum comes on the scene to declare, after a hundred years of this event, when Jonah, he comes to declare that, uh, that Nineveh's alarm has rung and there is no snooze button. Time is up. They are done. Listen to how he begins this prophecy. He says in, in Nahum 1 verse 2, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. Now, we were studying this passage in our Simeon Trust group. How many of you guys have that on a plaque in your kitchen that says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God? The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. I want to rock your world just a little bit this morning. If you're here with a version of Christianity that can only conceive of a God who is soft, who's agreeable, who's tolerant, you have the wrong God. Did you hear me? You have the wrong God. In, in one verse, in, in verse 2 here, God describes himself as being avenging. He uses avenging twice, vengeance once. He, he describes himself as avenging three times. He says that he keeps wrath or stores wrath for his enemies. And that he will by no means clear the guilty. Now that phrase might be familiar to you. That's a callback to Exodus 34. If you don't remember the story, what had happened, the whole golden calf event had happened. And Moses is meeting with God and he cried out to God. He says, Lord, show me your glory. And God says, I will let my goodness pass before you. He said, but you're only going to see the back part because no one can see me and live. And then the Lord passes before Moses. Listen, listen to what it says in Exodus 34, 6. God is going to reveal him. Now, when God, what God says here is the revelation. It's the unfolding of the, of the deep meaning of God's name. And this is what he says. And the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. How many of you like that? That's good, isn't it? Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But here it is. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now you might have noticed a slight difference in the two versions. In Exodus it says this, that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But then Nahum says that he is slow to anger and great in power. Why do we see this difference in the text? Well, I'll tell you. With Moses... God has come to the people as they've just committed this grave sin, busted the first two commandments wide open, and and God is emphasizing to Moses his grace that he will extend to his faltering people. But to the Ninevites, he's emphasizing his terrifying power to those who have blown him off who have rejected him, and who have targeted his people. To both, he is slow to anger. Remember what happened in Jonah? He was slow to anger. But that doesn't mean when it says he's slow to anger that he's going to stay his wrath forever. Nineveh experienced God's willingness to relent under Jonah's ministry. But now, what have they done with that? They've despised his goodness. 
God's pronouncement of destruction is absolute and is completely irrevocable. Nineveh's day to boast in glory and might is over. Romans tells us that the kindness of God is meant to draw us to repentance. When God displays his kindness, our response is to, is to immediately and stay in the posture of a, of a repenting person. But in, in Nineveh's case, the kindness of the Lord that he showed him in Jonah's time caused Nineveh to presume upon the grace of God. And in presumption, they became arrogant. We can get away with anything. Hmm. Ever known any Christians like that? Because they maybe have experienced the grace of God that they kind of take a a position where I can get away with anything. Kind of makes you wonder if they're really Christians, right? Y'all are quiet this morning. Just like we saw in Obadiah, God's wrath is now going to be poured out in retribution, just retribution on Assyria. There is no more opportunity for them. They are done. Now, why is this so interesting? Because when this prophecy was given by Nahum, listen to me, Assyria was not crumbling. Assyria wasn't coming apart at the seams. In fact, the, the, the uh, second chapter of Nahum tells us that Assyria was at the height of its power when this prophecy was given. They were the best of the best. There was no reason to think at all that they were in any jeopardy. They had more land. They had more wealth. They had more military power than anyone on earth at the time. But listen to how the Lord communicates through Nahum the utter devastation that's coming on Assyria. Verse 8 of chapter 1. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and pursue his enemies into darkness. Nineveh will not recover. They will be brought to a complete end. After the Babylonians did the seemingly impossible and defeated Assyria between 612 and 609 BC, they never recovered to a significant degree. God pursued them into darkness. Where are they? Where are they today? There might be people groups scattered in the Middle East that can trace their their origins to uh, ancient Assyria, but the once proud empire is forever gone. It has been consumed by the sands of time. God has pursued them into darkness. And God says in Nahum, that they will be cut down and pass away. God even addresses Assyria's king directly and he tells him that his name won't be perpetuated because God himself is going to make him a grave. Can you imagine having that written by you, written about you in scripture? God says, I'm going to make you a grave, O king of Assyria. He, he tells the, uh, the people of Judah that worthless Assyrians will no longer tramp through their streets. N- Nineveh, he says, is to be utterly cut off. Now, here's, I said all that to say this. That was the intro. Here's the payoff. Although this prophecy is all about Nineveh and Assyria, they are not the intended audience. That's important. This book wasn't written to Assyria. The book was written to the people of Judah. And think about this, Judah has already seen Nineveh's power. They saw it when Israel was defeated and carted away to foreign lands. 
And when this was written, Assyria was actually occupying lands in Judah. They were, they were encroaching upon Jerusalem. They were constantly harassing the people of Judah. But the Old Testament says that what Assyria did to Israel and to Judah was according to God's decree. Now this is tough for some people. But the fact of the matter was, Assyria was the whip that God used to punish his people for their ongoing unfaithfulness. They'd forsaken the covenant and they would be punished for it. And Assyria was the means of their punishment. But don't forget who we're talking about here. Don't forget, God is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. What am I saying? God is telling his people Judah that although he has used Assyria to punish them, he would remember, he would remember them. He wouldn't forget his people forever. And he would remember his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. He would remember Though Nineveh was used to accomplish the purposes of God, Nineveh was guilty. Why? Because they thought that the power that they exercised and the glory that they obtained by it belonged to them for their own enrichment. They took no pity on God's people, gave no glory to God, but they rather crushed his people mercilessly. They were blasphemous, cruel, greedy, and boastful. But Nahum, this little prophet that we know nothing about, comes out of the woodwork and, and he, he begins to speak to Judah. And Nahum's name, interestingly enough, means comfort. His purpose in revealing the wrath of God against Nineveh was to comfort his people, to show them that they had not been forgotten. And that God was faithful. And listen to this. He wants them to know that God is faithful even when we're not. Man, aren't you glad. Aren't you glad that God is faithful even when we're not. Nahum 1.7. Look at that. If you still have your Bibles open, look at this. I want to just, show, just quickly show you three passages that talk about, uh, what, show you what God is saying to Judah directly. Nahum 1.7 says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Verse 12, And though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break Nineveh's yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. Verse, chapter 2, verse 2. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. The entire book of Nahum is a comforting thing to, to Judah to say, Hey, I'm coming after your enemies, Judah. But it's also a taunt. It's a taunt. I, I was trying to figure out how to display this for a 21st century audience. How do you explain this idea of a taunt? We know what taunting is. That's not what I'm saying. But how do you really explain what's going on here? Do you know what the book of Nahum is? Seriously? It's trash talk. It's divinely inspired trash talk. God is mocking the one who mocked him. He's saying, oh yeah? Is that all you got? He laughs in the face of the one who dared to laugh in the face of God. What God is saying throughout the book of Nahum is, what is military might compared to the might of the God who commands angel armies? 
What is the wealth of the nations compared to the wealth of the one who owns everything that is and everything that ever will be? Nowhere is this scene better, this, this taunt, this trash talk. None of this, nowhere is this scene better than the portion we took as our text today that Raven read us. It is right here where we clearly see how the Holy Spirit could make a prophecy concerning an ancient extinct culture applicable to our 21st century lives. It's in this place that we clearly see the gospel's promise for us today. Let's look at it again. Nahum 2.10. Desolate. Desolation and ruin. Hearts melt. Knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. If you need to know what that means, ask me after service. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions? Where is the lion, where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb? This is picturing... Uh, Assyria as this lion's den and, and no one bothers the lions. That's where they eat. That's where they live. See, the Assyrians loved imaging themselves as fierce lions or, or as those who were stronger than lions. You can see an old, you know, sculpture of, of, of uh, I can't remember which Assyrian king, but he's literally with his bare hands defeating a lion. They wanted you to know how strong they were. And sometimes they would portray themselves as lions. You can see Assyrian images of, of uh, these winged lions with the head of the king on them. Uh, and, and then sometimes their, their lions were real, more realistic, but they were always portraying themselves as lions. But the message was clear that they were sending through these images. What is that message? Assyria is a lion. If you mess with us, you will be devoured. Who in their right mind wouldn't fear a roaring lion? I've heard testimonies of people who were, who were hunting and doing things in, in Africa and they'd, they'd build their little campfire and lay down to sleep at night and all of a sudden the, the, the roar of a lion would pierce the night sky. And it gets your attention is what I've heard. Is what I've heard. We always, you know, go to zoos and throw popcorn at them. But not, when, when we're face to face, it's a whole other thing, right? But God, I want you to get this. This is so good for you today. What God does is he looks into this lion's den and he says, I'll ruin it. I'll make it a, desol- I'll make it a desolation. I will give the lion something to fear. If you don't mind me saying so, God says, here, kitty, kitty. The lion will have no den to retreat to anymore. Its lair has been uncovered. It's been pillaged. It's been ruined. The lions who dwelt there, who were so fearsome, have been evicted. Nahum 2.12 says the lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Nineveh the lion pursued nation after nation as their prey. They greedily gobbled up every power that stood before them, leaving nothing but ruins. But now, but now things are changing. Look at verse 13, chapter 2. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. 
I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. What is the Lord saying? The Lord is saying that a lion hunter has showed up on the scene that is too strong for Assyria, too strong for Nineveh. He will burn their weapons. He will kill their soldiers. He will take away all the spoils they collected in the spilling of blood. And he is going to absolutely, once and for all, shut down their propaganda machine. What does this mean for us? We still haven't landed this plane in the 21st century yet. Let me help you. 1 Peter 5.8 says this, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. See, Assyria played the adversary for Israel and Judah. And though separated by thousands of years, we too have an ever-prowling enemy. And our enemy, just like theirs, is real, He's dangerous, and let me tell you something, he is hungry. And Judah watched as Israel was devoured by the Assyrian lion who swallowed them whole, never to be heard from again. And we too, there's too many stories to count. You and I have seen many people, some of those we love the most, who have been pursued and devoured by the devil, the adversary of their souls, the great prowling lion. They may have been taken out by greed or by addiction or by unbelief or by a thousand other things, but they are gone. They were prey for the enemy of their souls. And there's not one of us in here, not a single one of us in here who this devilish lion has not pursued or desired to devour. So what is it? Why are we here? What has kept us safe when others have been torn to pieces? Well, look, it's right there in Revelation, right there. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. Weep no more. Behold, the lion... Of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has overcome, has conquered. Assyria may have envisioned themselves as lions, but it was just an illusion. The devil may prowl like a lion, but let me tell you a little secret. He's fully subject to the risen sun, the authority of the risen sun. If you don't believe that, read the first couple of chapters of Job. Jesus is different than the lion of Assyria or the prowling lion who is the devil. Jesus isn't a lion in his imagination like Assyria was. He doesn't prowl in the manner of a lion like the devil. Jesus is the lion of Judah, the forever enthroned avenging king of his covenant people. When he roars, when this lion roars, nations and strongholds are shattered before him. When he roars, mountains and hills melt. When he roars, he breaks the chains of sin and his people are released from their captivity forever. 
See, God may allow the prowling lion to nip at us from time to time, to humble us, to discipline us, to keep us dependent on Christ. But if we are his covenant people, the prowling lion will never overcome us. He will never devour us. Let me read it to you again. Nahum 1.7, we already read it. The Lord is good. A stronghold, a fortress in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. The Bible says that, the, the, that we have this inscription. The Lord knows all those who are his. And they are safely accounted for within the walls of his fortress. See, by the cross of Jesus, Christ ruined forever the empire of Satan that would devour his people. By rising from the dead, Christ has declawed death itself and he lifted his mighty roar over the kingdom of darkness, causing it to tremble in its own impotency. For we who have believed, and only for we who have believed, the power of Satan is devastated forever. Listen how Paul puts it in Colossians. Colossians 2.13 And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now listen to verse 15 very carefully. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, what is that talking about? You, you guys have probably heard this before, but it's, it's true. In, in the, the era of the Roman Empire, if, if your nation was in trouble with Rome and they went and they had to deal with you and they conquered you, what they would do is they would literally, they would conquer you, then they would strip you bare naked, chain you together and parade you through town so people could mock you and, and taunt you and laugh at you and throw things at you. They, they wanted to show you that you you had been utterly defeated by the Roman Empire. What picture is Jesus painting for us in his word right here? The devil has been stripped. He has been chained. He has been led like a fool through the procession of the people of God who can now, only in Christ, not on our own, we talked about this in Jude, but in Christ can laugh at him, can mock him, can, can throw things at him because we are protected. We are in the fortress. We are, we are, are saved from his power, uh, from the power of the enemy. We are saved because of what Jesus has done. Now there's a lot of, for us to learn from Nahum. God is sovereign. That means he's all-powerful over kings and kingdoms. He's all-powerful over wars and armies. He's all-powerful over principalities and powers. We also learn that God is a jealous God. Now, that, that's a hard word for people, but I'm not saying God is jealous of his people. He is jealous for his people. We learn that to stand against God like Assyria, to resist him, to insist on your greatness or having your own way is the highest kind of foolishness there is. You cannot win. And we learn that God will put an end to all evil, that there is no avoiding it. But mostly we learn that God will never abandon his people. 
but rather he will defend them, he'll deliver them, and he will vindicate them. Let's stand. Pray with me. Lord, your word says that we have an adversary and he prowls about like a lion seeking whom he will devour, Lord. And God, we do not we do not take him lightly, Lord. We don't take him flippantly, Lord God. We don't uh, we don't stand before our adversary with any arrogance, Lord. But we know that in you we have nothing to fear. God, you've delivered us from all the power of sin. You've delivered us from all the power of the fall. You've delivered us from all the power of, of uh, God, just, just death itself. And so, Lord, I pray that, that when we are pursued, when, when our, our adversary snaps his jaws, Lord, that we would run to the fortress. Because you're good, Lord. You are a stronghold to those who trust in you. You remember those. You know those who put their trust in you. And so, Lord, cause us, Lord, to embrace the cross. God, even if in this life it means suffering and and harassment and persecution help us to be like the people of Judah hearing the words of Nahum, knowing that a day of full vindication is coming, Lord, a day when when your enemy will be forever cast down, that you will hurl him into the bottomless pit forever and ever. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you are mighty. We thank you that you are holy. We thank you that you have called our names and delivered us from darkness into your marvelous light. We thank you that you are our great deliverer, that you are the lion of the tribe of Judah. And God, I ask you to lift your mighty roar over this congregation, Lord God. Let chains fall. Let fear be dissolved. Let faith arise. I thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take communion together. I'm going to invite you to come forward and uh, take the elements and um, then return to your seat and we will take them together. The church I grew up in, as referring to, um, we talked about the devil a lot. Um, We had, it's almost a devil fixation. And when I, um, when I say the things that I said this morning, I want to reemphasize as we stand with the cup representing the blood of Jesus Christ and the, the bread that represents his broken body, that I, as I said in my prayer, I am not flippant about the devil. And I want to make clear something. You have absolutely zero power over the devil if your confidence is in some script that you have, some words that you learn to say by, from some book or televangelist, some some scripture you memorized. If you doubt me, read the story of the seven sons of Sceva in the book of Acts. Our power over the enemy, the reason I can say things like, 
Christ came and declawed death. The reason I can say that our power over the enemy, which we have, comes only when the cross of Jesus Christ is lifted high. That is what makes the devil tremble. It is not, it's not your words, it's not your bravado, it's not your machismo, it's none of that. The devil isn't one bit scared of you. But, the Lord, but, the, but the, the, when the Lord roars, the devil trembles. When the cross of Jesus Christ is raised high, when his gospel is celebrated, when his truth is proclaimed, that's when the devil takes notice. That's when the devil knows that he is forever defeated. Oh, sure, he's going to harass us from time to time, but he can never, ever, ever overcome us because the lion of Judah has, past tense, conquered. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. Lord, thank you that you were consumed bearing our sins so that we wouldn't have to be devoured. Thank you, Lord, that you were torn apart so that we wouldn't have to be. Thank you, Jesus. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Lord, we cling to Paul's words, which are your words, because you divinely inspired them. And we, with the taste of this juice in our, on our tongue, Lord God, we proclaim your death, Lord God. We glory in the cross. We will not boast in anything except the cross of Jesus Christ through which the, the, we have died to the world and the world has died to us, Lord. We thank you for your overcoming power. We thank you that you have overcome death, hell, the grave, the devil. We thank you that you have overcome. And Lord, we pray that we would look to you as our victor, as our champion, Lord. No matter what the, the, the day brings, Lord, we are safe in you. No matter what the present hour looks like, we are safe in you. And we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, place your hands in a receiving position. And I'll read the benediction over you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, says the Lord, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You are dismissed.